Section 34 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 1 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 15 Famine Forces Peel's Hand, Part 1. We see how the two great parties of the state stood with regard to this question of free trade. The Whigs were steadily gravitating toward it. Their leaders did not see their way to accept it as a principle of practical statesmanship, but it was evident that their acceptance of it was only a question of time and of no long time. The leader of the Tory party was being drawn day by day more in the same direction. Both leaders, Russell and Peel, had gone as far as to admit the general principles of free trade. Peel had contended that grain was in England a necessary exception. Russell was not of opinion that the time had come when it could be treated otherwise than as an exception. The Free Trade Party, small indeed in its parliamentary force, but daily growing more and more powerful with the country, would take nothing from either leader but free trade, sans phrase, and would take that from either leader without regard to partisan considerations. It is evident to anyone who knows anything of the working of our system of government by party that this must soon have ended in one or other of the two great ruling parties forming an alliance with the free traders. If unforeseen events had not interposed, it is probable that conviction would first have fastened on the minds of the Whigs, and that they would have had the honor of abolishing the Corn Laws. They were out of office and did not seem likely to get back soon to it by their own power, and the Free Trade Party would have come in time to be a very desirable ally. It would be idle to pretend to doubt that the convictions of political parties are hastened on a good deal under our system by the yearning of those who are out of office to get the better of those who are in. Statesmen in England are converted as Henry of Navarre became Catholic, we do not say that they actually change their opinions for the sake of making themselves eligible for power, but a change which has been growing up imperceptibly, and which might otherwise have taken a long time to declare itself, is stimulated thus to confess itself and come out into the light. But in the case of the anti-corn law agitation, an event over which political parties had no control intervened to spur the intent of the Prime Minister. Mr. Bright, many years after, when pronouncing the eulogy of his dead friend Cobden, described what happened in a fine sentence. Famine itself, against which we had warred, joined us. In the autumn of 1845, the potato rot began in Ireland. The vast majority of the working population of Ireland were known to depend absolutely on the potato for subsistence. In the northern province, where the population were of Scotch extraction, the oatmeal, the bros of their ancestors, still supplied the staple of their food. But in southern and western provinces, a large proportion of the peasantry actually lived on the potato, and the potato alone. In these districts, whole generations grew up, lived, married, and passed away without having ever tasted flesh meat. It was evident then that a failure in the potato crop would be equivalent to famine. Many of the laboring class received little or no money wages. 
they lived on what was called the cottier tenant system that is to say a man worked for a landowner on condition of getting the use of a little scrap of land for himself on which to grow potatoes to be the sole food of himself and his family the news came in the autumn of eighteen forty five that the long continuance of sunless wet and cold had imperilled if not already destroyed the food of a people the cabinet of sir robert peel held hasty meetings closely following each other people began to ask whether parliament was about to be called together and whether the government had resolved on a bold policy the anti-corn law league were clamouring for the opening of the ports the prime minister himself was strongly in favour of such a course he urged upon his colleagues that all restrictions upon the importation of foreign corn should be suspended either by an order in council or by calling parliament together and recommending such a measure from the throne it is now known that in offering his advice to his colleagues peel accompanied with it the expression of a doubt as to whether it would ever be possible to restore the restrictions that had once been suspended indeed this doubt must have filled every mind the league was openly declaring that one reason why they called for the opening of the ports was that once opened they never could be closed again the doubt was enough for some of the colleagues of sir robert peel it seems marvellous now how responsible statesmen could struggle for the retention of restrictions which were so unpopular and indefensible that if they were once suspended under the pressure of no matter what exceptional necessity they never could be reimposed the duke of wellington and lord stanley however opposed the idea of opening the ports and the proposal fell through the cabinet merely resolved on appointing a commission consisting of the heads of departments in ireland to take some steps to guard against a sudden outbreak of famine and the thought of an autumnal session was abandoned sir robert peel himself has thus tersely described the manner in which his proposals were received the cabinet by a very considerable majority declined giving its assent to the proposals which i thus made to them they were supported by only three members of the cabinet the earl of aberdeen sir james graham and sir sidney herbert the other members of the cabinet some on the ground of objection to the principle of the measures recommended others upon the ground that there was not yet sufficient evidence of the necessity for them withheld their sanction the great cry all through ireland was for opening of the ports the mansion house relief committee of dublin issued a series of resolutions declaring their conviction from the most undeniable evidence that considerably more than one-third of the entire potato crop in ireland had been already destroyed by the disease and that the disease had not ceased its ravages but on the contrary was daily expanding more and more no reasonable conjecture can be formed the resolutions went on to state with respect to the limit of its effects short of the destruction of the entire remaining crop and the document concluded with a denunciation of the ministry for not opening the ports or calling parliament together before the usual time for its assembling two or three days after the issue of these resolutions lord john russell wrote a letter from edinburgh to his constituents the electors of the city of london a letter which is one of the historical documents of the reign 
it announced his unqualified conversion to the principles of the anti-corn law league the failure of the potato crop was of course the immediate occasion of this letter indecision and procrastination lord john russell wrote may produce a state of suffering which it is frightful to contemplate it is no longer worth while to contend for a fixed duty in eighteen forty one the free trade party would have agreed to a duty of eight shillings per quarter on wheat and after a lapse of years this duty might have been further reduced and ultimately abolished but the imposition of any duty at present without a provision for its extinction within a short period would but prolong a contest already sufficiently fruitful of animosity and discontent lord john russell then invited a general understanding to put an end to a system which has been proved to be the blight of commerce the bane of agriculture the source of bitter division among classes the cause of penury fever mortality and crime among the people then the writer added a significant remark to the effect that the government appeared to be waiting for some excuse to give up the present corn laws and urging the people to afford them all the excuse they could desire by petition by address by remonstrance peel himself has told us in his memoirs what was the effect which this letter produced upon his own counsels it could not he points out fail to exercise a very material influence on the public mind and on the subject matter of our deliberations in the cabinet it justified the conclusion that the whig party was prepared to unite with the anti corn law league in demanding the total repeal of the corn laws peel would not consent now to propose simply an opening of the ports it would seem he thought a mere submission to accept the minimum of the terms ordered by the whig leader that would have been well enough when he first recommended it to his cabinet and if it could have then been offered to the country as the spontaneous movement of a united ministry it would have been becoming of the emergency and of the men but to do this now would be futile would seem like trifling with the question sir robert peel therefore recommended to his cabinet an early meeting of parliament with the view of bringing forward some measure equivalent to a speedy repeal of the corn laws the recommendation was wise it was indeed indispensable yet it is hard to think that an impartial posterity will form a very lofty estimate of the wisdom with which the counsels of the two great english parties were guided in this momentous emergency neither whigs nor tories appear to have formed a judgment because of facts or principles but only in deference to the political necessities of the hour sir robert peel himself denied that it was the resistless hand of famine in ireland which had brought him to his resolve that the corn laws ought to be abolished he grew into the conviction that they were bad in principle lord john russell had long been growing into the same conviction yet the league had been left to divide with but small numbers against overwhelming majorities made up of both parties until the very session before peel proposed to repeal the corn laws lord beaconsfield indeed indulges in something like exaggeration when he says in his life of lord george bentinck that the close of the session of eighteen forty five found the league nearly reduced to silence but it is not untrue that as he says the manchester confederates seem to be least in favour with parliament and the country 
on the very eve of their triumph they lost at the same time elections and the ear of the house and the cause of total and immediate repeal seemed in a not less hopeless position than when under circumstances of infinite difficulty it was first and solely upheld by the terse eloquence and vivid perception of charles villiers lord beaconsfield certainly ought to know what cause had and what had not the ear of the house of commons at that time and yet we venture to doubt even after his assurance whether the league and its speakers had in any way found their hold on the attention of parliament diminishing but the loss of elections is beyond dispute it is a fact alluded to in the very letter from lord john russell which was creating so much commotion it is not to be denied lord john russell writes that many elections for cities and towns in eighteen forty one and some in eighteen forty five appear to favour the assertion that free trade is not popular with the great mass of the community this is from whatever cause a very common phenomenon in our political history a movement which began with the promise of sweeping all before it seems after a while to lose its force and is supposed by many observers to be now only the work and the care of a few earnest and fanatical men suddenly it is taken up by a minister of commanding influence and the bore or the crotchet of one parliament is the great party controversy of the second and the accomplished triumph of the third in this instance it is beyond dispute that the league seemed to be somewhat losing in strength and influence just on the eve of its complete triumph he must indeed be the very optimist of parliamentary government who upholds the manner of free trade's final adoption as absolutely satisfactory and as reflecting nothing but credit upon the counsels of our two great political parties such a well-contented personage might be fairly asked to explain why a system of protective taxation beginning to be regarded by all thoughtful statesmen as bad in itself should never be examined with a view to its repeal until the force of a great emergency and the rival biddings of party leaders came to render its repeal inevitable the corn laws as all the world now admits were a cruel burden to the poor and the working class of england they were justly described by lord john russell as the blight of commerce the bane of agriculture the source of bitter division among classes the cause of penury fever mortality and crime among the people all this was independent of the sudden and ephemeral calamity of the potato rot which at the time when lord john russell wrote that letter did not threaten to become nearly so fatal as it afterwards proved to be one cannot help asking how long would the corn laws have been suffered thus to blight commerce and agriculture to cause division among classes and to produce penury mortality and crime among the people if the potato rot in ireland had not rendered it necessary to do something without delay the potato rot however inspired the writing of lord john russell's letter and lord john russell's letter inspired sir robert peel with the conviction that something must be done most of his colleagues were inclined to go with him this time a cabinet council was held on november twenty fifth almost immediately after the publication of lord john russell's letter at that council sir robert peel recommended the summoning of parliament with a view to instant measures to combat the famine in ireland but with a view also 
to some announcement of legislation intended to pave the way for the repeal of the corn laws lord stanley still hesitated and asked time to consider his decision the duke of wellington was unchanged in his private opinion that the corn laws ought to be maintained but he declared with a blunt simplicity that his only object in public life was to support sir robert peel's administration of the government for the queen a good government for the country said the sturdy and simple old hero is more important than corn laws or any other consideration one may smile at this notion of a good government without reference to the quality of the legislation it introduces it reminds one a little of the celebrated study of history without reference to time or place but the duke acted strictly up to his principles of duty and he declared that if sir robert peel considered the repeal of the corn laws to be not right or necessary for the welfare of england but requisite for the maintenance of sir robert peel's position in parliament and in the public view he should thoroughly support the proposal lord stanley however was not to be changed in the end he took time to consider and seems really to have tried his best to persuade himself that he could fall in with the new position which the premier had assumed meanwhile the most excited condition of public feeling prevailed throughout london and the country generally the times newspaper came out on december fourth with the announcement that the ministry had made up its mind and that the royal speech at the commencement of the session would recommend an immediate consideration of the corn laws preparatory to their total repeal it would be hardly possible to exaggerate the excitement caused by this startling piece of news it was indignantly and in unqualified terms declared a falsehood by the ministerial prince long arguments were gone into to prove that even if the fact announced was true it could not possibly have been known to the times in disraeli's coningsby mr rigby gives the clearest and most convincing reasons to prove first that lord spencer could not be dead as report said he was and next that even if he were dead the fact could not possibly be known to those who took on themselves to announce it he is hardly silenced even by the assurance of a great duke that he is one of lord spencer's executors and that lord spencer is certainly dead so the announcement in the times was fiercely and pedantically argued against it can't be true the times could not get to know of it it must be a cabinet secret if it were true nobody outside the cabinet could possibly know of it if any one outside the cabinet could get to know of it it would not be the times it would be this or that or the other person or journal and so forth long after it had been made certain beyond even mr rigby's power of disputation that the announcement was true so far as the resolve of the prime minister was concerned people continued to argue and controvert as to the manner in which the times became possessed of the secret the general conclusion came to among the knowing was that the blandishments of a gifted and beautiful lady with a dash of political intrigue in her had somehow extorted the secret from a young and handsome member of the cabinet and that she had communicated it to the times it is not impossible that this may have been the true explanation it was believed in by a great many persons who might have been in a position to judge of the probabilities on the other hand there were surely signs and tokens enough by which a shrewd politician might have guessed what was to come without any intervention of petticoat diplomacy it seems odd now that people should then have distressed themselves so much by conjectures as to the source of the information when once it was made certain 
that the information itself was substantially true this it undoubtedly was although it did not tell all the truth and could not foretell for there was an ordeal yet to be gone through before the prime minister could put his plans into operation on december fourth the times made the announcement on the sixth having been passionately contradicted it repeated the assertion we adhere to our original announcement that parliament will meet early in january and that a repeal of the corn laws will be proposed in one house by sir r peel and in the other by the duke of wellington but in the meantime the opposition in the cabinet had proved itself unmanageable lord stanley and the duke of buckley intimated to the prime minister that they could not be parties to any measure involving the ultimate repeal of the corn laws sir robert peel did not believe that he could carry out his project satisfactorily under such circumstances and he therefore hastened to tender his resignation to the queen the other members of the cabinet without exception i believe these are sir robert peel's own words concurred in this opinion and under these circumstances i considered it to be my duty to tender my resignation to her majesty on the fifth of december i repaired to osborne isle of wight and humbly solicited her majesty to relieve me from duties which i felt i could no longer discharge with advantage to her majesty's service the very day after the times made its famous announcement the very day before the times repeated it the prime minister who was to propose the repeal of the corn laws went out of office End of section thirty four